Nancy Duyon has a remarkable story that led her into a career in technology. From her childhood in Haiti, to moving to Boston and taking part in an MIT program as a kid, to running away from home, and then teaching as a teenager. Nancy's unconventional path gives her a unique perspective on how to approach product design for an audience that includes everyone. We chat with Nancy about her initial reluctance to enter a technical field despite her talent, how she thinks about making sure research represents a diverse set of users, and understanding global perspectives in product design. We hope you enjoy this chat with Nancy Duyon, and thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Before we jump into the interview today, we're going to take a few minutes to sit down with a couple of our colleagues to talk about a few articles that we've recently released on InsideDesign.com. Joining us today, we have Allison Rand, Senior Director of Design Operations, and Mike Davidson, VP of Partnerships and Community, both at Envision. In our conversation with Mike and Allison, we talk about the emerging discipline of ethics in design and how it's starting to play an important role in our industry. And we also talk about the crazy debacle that was the Iowa Democratic Caucuses and how design and engineering played a key role in the democratic process. Mike and Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Allison, you, you recently wrote this article on our Designer Confidential, How Do I Create a Healthy Team Culture When My Own Boss is Toxic? And unfortunately, I have my own toxic boss here. I was hoping he didn't have to do it. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll work with that as best we can. So what, what inspired you to write this article and how did you think about the way that you wanted to structure it, which I, I thought was great? I was inspired to write the article, well, based on the question that came in through Designer Confidential. It's the one that stood out to me because I've thought about this for a long time, certainly in all the times I've spent over my career uh, building teams and studying team dynamics, et cetera. And it's certainly in design operations, thinking about how I could be effective and how my role in design operations is pretty is pretty. Uh, connected to the support for design operations. Otherwise, I'm sort of dead in the water. So so I have seen and understand how difficult it is to create healthy team dynamics in unhealthy situations and have thought about it, you know, what, what it takes to build a healthy team, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a leader from the top 
in the middle, wherever you are trying to lead uh, a team and what you can do individually to kind of foster a sense of healthier dynamics or a safe environment in the best of situations and under the worst of circumstances. How does it work when you have a toxic leader? How might we think about managing up and speaking to that, uh, giving people that feedback in a way that they can hear it? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes I think people find themselves in a position where they're, they're kind of defending the team. And I think in a lot of those situations, it becomes very difficult to be a servant leader when you have to kind of, quote unquote, protect your team from a toxic leadership or whatever have you. But I think a lot of that connection really comes from the communication. And, and I'm not sure what the exact right answer is in terms of being the person who has to be on the front line between the, the, you know, the toxic leadership and the team. But I often find that it's ways to really understand um, what the underlying motivations are potentially of that person who's leading in a way that might not be the healthiest for the organization or, or for the team. And if you can kind of extract some of those underlying motivations and you can find the right ways, the ways in which the message can be received. Uh, and having worked in client services for so long, I was definitely in those situations often, um, bringing design into organizations where it was, you know, maybe not necessarily wanted, or it was the kind of last ditch effort to save something. Um, and trying to prove the value of the work that the team is doing is really about understanding, again, the people like your audience and the person that you're creating the work for. And so trying to like work around the personality or whatever it might be that, that that's the disconnect or the friction and just focus on how to communicate best to those types of people and how to also teach your teams to deliver in these types of circumstances. And, and so much of it is around framing, I think. I think it's also important to be careful about how we use the word toxic. Like I, I have heard the word toxic used to describe very minor behaviors. So, hey, my boss is toxic. He or she cuts people off. Like, no, that's not really toxicity. That's a bad habit that you probably shouldn't do in the workplace. Whereas, you know, I've also seen toxic bosses that are truly toxic, that poison everything around them, that uh, are really a drag on the company culture, that do things that are you know, potentially even borderline illegal in the workplace. So, like, we should we should just be careful about how we throw the word toxic around because I think there are different resolutions for different levels of toxicity, so, so, so to speak. I think if you have a leader in the organization who is truly toxic and everybody sees it, you know, they're probably not, not long for the organization. Those people tend to not last su super long. So in those cases, you know, oftentimes it is a bit of a war of attrition, right? It's like everybody in the company kind of sees like, hey, we're, you know, we're a great company and somehow this person got in and they don't seem like they're working out. Um, you know, chances are they might not be here in three months. They might not be here in, in, in six months. So you got to kind of like, you know, pick your battles and, and uh, you know, sometimes wait it out with people like that. Uh, but I think, you know, the more common situation, I think, is when you have a leader who, you know, is effective in some ways and does have some amount of influence in the organization and is a net, a net positive in some ways. Um, but displays you know, behavior that is is you know less less than becoming in what you would you would like in your leadership. And so, you know, I think in instances like that, the the solutions are more along the lines of kind of like what Allison said. Like you gotta you you, you gotta figure out kind of like what's what's going on in this person's head. How are they motivated? 
like learning about motivations is really, really important. You know, as designers, we're often motivated by, by creating beautiful things, by creating, uh, uh, useful things, by solving user problems, uh, by grading, getting great user feedback. Like those are our kind of like internal metrics that we are, uh, yeah, that we're trained against. And, and this, this hypothetical toxic leader may not even be a designer, right? They may be a, 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 a product, a head of product. They may be a head of engineering. Uh, they may be a CEO, God forbid. And they may be motivated by different things. Like, hey, I, let's say you're as a toxic head of product, right? And they're on the hook for shipping X number of things throughout the year. And unbeknownst to you, that was what they signed up for. So that's what they care about. So, you know, sometimes getting to the bottom of behavior that seems toxic or ends up actually being toxic comes down to like figuring out how the person is motivated and then using that to determine how, how best to work with them. Oh, you, you're, you're motivated by shipping these 10 things that you said you're on the hook with. Well, how can my team help with that? Yeah, it's, it's almost like using the power of design to, to handle these interpersonal challenges inside the workplace. Before we move on, Aaron, I just wanted to uh, hit on two quick related readings to Allison's article. One is um, Stephen Deasy, who's the head of engineering at Atlassian, shared a useful play for roles and responsibilities, which you talked about. And we'll share the link for that in the show notes. And then on the, on the rituals front, there's a book by Kershot. Ozink and Margaret Hagen about rituals for work, which might be helpful for the folks looking for those types of things. So we'll link to that as well. That's great. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what happened this past week in Iowa. The caucuses happened, uh, Democrat and Republican caucuses, but of course the there was a specific design challenge related to the, the Democratic caucuses there. And we, we published a piece uh, about this uh, interview with Dana Chisnell, who's probably the foremost authority on civic design around. She was uh, she's served in the White House. She's um, served on multiple councils for civic design and voting design. And she had some great observations about what happened there. But uh, curious to hear your take on how uh, things went wrong in Iowa and lessons we can learn from the design perspective on the situation. I mean, I, I shook my head pretty intensely over this one, <laughs> mostly because I feel like, again, like I, I've been in this position as a consultant where you or you're asked to deliver something under untenable circumstances. And often, more often than not, research is the first thing that gets cut when you're under tight time constraints, research and validation and quality assurance and all of those things. And I, you know, and I think about, you know, the intention is good, right? And the timing is terrible. And oftentimes in these types of situations, which is rather unfortunate, we're not really playing out worst case scenario. And the design process in and of itself is based in kind of identifying what that worst case scenario could be if you have the time to do the research. And, uh, and I was uh, thinking recently, I heard uh, Robert Fabricant talking about the book that he co-authored, User-Friendly, and saying, behavior is our medium, which I love as designers. Uh, and so if we're, if we're approaching these types of things that have such an intense impact, and we're not thinking about the behaviors of the people who are going to be using them or around any of it, and not even thinking about like basic things like maybe something's not going to work in a middle school gymnasium, then we're not thinking about, well, first of all, we're not thinking about design at scale, obviously, and we're not thinking about just the broader impact of our responsibility when we're designing products. 
this one has so many interesting angles to dive into. I mean, the, the one, the one I, I, I start with is, you know, how, how many, how many months did the team work on this Two. how many months since the last caucus? Like shocking. 48, <laughs> right. There's been, there's been 48 months since the last caucus and, and, uh, the team waited until, uh, uh not the team, but the, I guess the democratic party in, in Iowa waited until the last two months to address this, which is, you know, uh, that's pretty much all you need to know to know that something was probably going to go wrong. I, I think the other thing that I, that I, that I've been thinking about with regard to this particular case is, you know, the problem that they were trying to solve appears to be getting results in quicker, right? So they could re- report the winner more quickly. And, you know, you, you think about that and you're like, okay, well, that doesn't sound like too bad of an objective. Like it would be nice to know who the winner of the Iowa caucus is like as soon as possible. But then you think about it and you're like, you know what, what if we didn't know until the next day? Like, is that so bad? You know, like if we, if the world would keep spinning, it's like, even if, even if it, if, if it slowed down, which it ended up doing, right? Like if we found out four or five, six days later, who won the caucus, like, is it that big of a deal? Probably not. Right. And so I think in the name of, in the name of improving this one metric, which was essentially speed to reporting, you know, they ended up adopting this technology that was not well tested, not well designed, not well deployed. And here, here's where we are. And, and, you know, to Allison's point, the, the thing that gets cut first, even in expensive projects with, with long runways, is research and, test, and testing, you know. And uh, it's just a reminder that, you know, you, you are not the only person that's going to be using your product. So you, you, you have to account for how it's being used in the real world. And, and I think we see, you know, there, there, was no, there was no one thing that went wrong here. There were, there were not nine or ten things that went wrong. And, and you know, I'm got, people like to talk about, hey, hey, should Iowa really be first, right? Like, why, is I, why does Iowa get to vote first every, every election? Well, you know what? I'm happy Iowa went first, right? Because because now every other state can go. Hey, do we have our 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 our, our plan together? Like, should we be using <laughs> this this technology that we were planning on using? And you know, I think already Nevada has decided not to use um, that that same app developed by the same company. So maybe it's kind of good to have a, a a single state go, you know, a week before before everybody else. I mean, I would also add on to that and say that hindsight's always twenty twenty, but. I think that like the, the the more positive spin on it potentially is that crisis equals opportunity. And I think a lot of these things tend to expose cracks in the overall system. And so it might be an issue with this one app, but I actually think there's probably a bigger systemic issue that this has begun to uncover. We all, you know, can kind of pontificate about all the things that are broken in government and these types of systems, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that like the reality is designers, when we're thinking about these types of problems, we'll probably reference this, you know, for years and years to come as ways we should be thinking about like, where were the, where did things go wrong? Where were the cracks in the system? Where did we not do the right thing? You know, start, starting to your point, Mike, 48 months ago. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think this came out in the article, but I believe none of this technology is used after, you know, multiple, it's, it's not reused. It's used once and then thrown away, right? So you would think what would happen in a situation like this is you'd have kind of like, you know, one company that was contracted by the the national, you know, Democratic Party to build this sort of technology and then deploy it. And then 
you know, improve it for the next election cycle and then improve it for the next election cycle after that. Like that's the way that you're supposed to develop software. But no, instead we have these kind of like onesies, twosies projects that get used once and then thrown away. So, you know, that's, that's cer- certainly a lesson of, uh, of this, um, in, in my, in my mind is we have to stop making disposable technology because the only way to kind of make things hardened and, 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 uh, solid is to continuously improve them. I'm sorry. One more thing, just to like connect the line back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier in terms of teams dynamics. I can't help but think about the fire festival because I wonder how many people thought that this was not a good idea and didn't say anything, you know, and didn't feel it was the right environment to actually say something. Well, so we do know we do know that that that, that did come up. Uh, our former head of security at Twitter, who I worked with uh, while I was there, Bob Lord is the head of security, I believe, for the DNC. And he sounded, he, he amongst others was sounding the alarm bells on this ahead of time uh, and, and apparently was not, was not listened to. So there were definitely people. And I mean, I would consider that being a position of power, head of security for the DNC. Like, so there were people that, that high up um, and probably people um, not quite that high up also, you know, sounding alarm bells. And, and at a certain point, you have to decide, decide do I want to listen to people or do I not? And, and I think the answer is... Um, you got to you got to listen to people. Yeah. And high stakes projects like this, um, you know, I can't help but think that in manufacturing, there's the, the red button, which I think is part of uh, Six Sigma best practices that if something's going wrong in a manufacturing line, anyone can go over and hit the red button to stop it so you can address it, fix it as quick as possible and then get back on track. It seems like a red button situation would probably be good. Not with all projects, but certain really, you know, high value projects like this, where there's a lot well, of repercussions. So that, that's a really good point. And I'm really curious. It, I don't know if this will ever come out, but it would be really, really interesting to know, were people who are actually building this trying to push the red button, right? Like, were, were the people who are actually building this saying, hey, everybody, we only have a week to go. We don't think we're the ones building this. We don't think it's going to work. We should not deploy it like were they doing that or was it the other way around where they say where they say hey we've tested it everything is fine don't worry i hope that comes out because to me like those are the fascinating kind of details of product design uh and you can only really get to the ground truth by talking to the people who are actually building the thing ironically this is the subject of the final episode of silicon valley (laughs) (laughs) yeah so this this was kind of on our radar to do a, an ethics article and then part of a email list, which is alumni for the product design program at Stanford. And the founders of Juul were, were in the master's program. And so there was a long running debate uh, around Juul and the founders. And it was, it was really interesting to me because the, the discussion was very nuanced. I think, you know, a lot of time you get the perspective that, ah, Juul, bad, creates these products that are addictive to, you know, young people, get people addicted to nicotine. But there were people on the list that were that were kind of putting up the argument that that Juul had actually helped them move away from cigarettes, and that the founders, although they didn't participate in the discussion, the uh, the story is that that was their original inspiration is to help people move away from cigarettes, and that along the way, maybe the the intent got a little corrupted potentially. So it was nice to see a forum where people could kind of discuss things openly with some nuance, and then this was tied to around this you know recently Instagram removing likes in an effort to maybe decrease some of the social pressure around their platform. So there are, there are a number of kind of interesting trends popping up in the design space around products. So it feels like a kind of rich time to be exploring that. 
Yeah, I mean, to to me, the one of the most interesting things about this particular debate around ethics and design is separating intentions from outcomes. And I think oftentimes we have been content to sort of let people and companies off the hook because we think that they have good intentions. And usually they do actually, right? Like for all of the you know harm that some of these products are having in the world right now, let's just, you know, let's just take the largest social network in the world. Like, I don't think the people who are in charge of that network started out like thinking that it was going to be this impactful and uh, would have this this effect on the world. It basically started out to, you know, as a dating site. And I still give the benefit of the doubt to people running large services like that um, in terms of what their intentions are. But we can't end there. We, we have to look at the actual effects that these products are having on the world. So it's not enough to say, I am trying to build a product that helps the world. If in fact your product is, ends up hurting the world, it's kind of like nuclear energy in a way, right? Like nuclear energy is not a bad thing per se, but it can be used in really, really terrible ways. And if we took the sort of hands-off view of nuclear energy that we take with some of our digital products, we would, I mean, we wouldn't be here, right? We would be, if, if, if we allowed nuclear energy to get into the hands of every single person in the world, regardless of uh, re- regardless of what their motivations are or, or where they, you know, how good or evil they are, uh, so, so to speak, you know, if everybody in the world had the ability to, to you know, build a nuclear bomb, you know, none of us would be here. So I think that we're starting to kind of enter an awakening stage for the, for ethics and product design where we're not, we're not stopping at people's intentions. We're actually looking at what the unintended consequences are of what they build. And, and to me, I, I'm not, versed enough on the jewel case to to know kind of where that all went wrong but clearly even if you were to take the the founders at their at their word that hey we we're trying to create a product that helps people get off cigarettes um clearly that's not all that it's done uh and so as a company you need to take responsibility for the effect that your products have on the world and as an industry we need to keep the heat on and like we 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 need to have these conversations so that people realize like hey the world is watching and it's not enough for us to it's not enough for us to to build a, a product that we thought was going to be good for the world we need to actually ensure that it is yeah like what what's what's that saying is the uh the road to hell is paved with good intentions <laughs> but I, I think this is definitely not uncommon right we've seen this throughout the history of product design in any case like even with product recalls it's easier to be like ikea has a faulty dresser that's like hurting children you can like just stop selling it bring it back whatever let everybody know in the best way possible but i think a lot of where things start to go wrong is the scaling around these things. And so from what I understand, yeah, the intention of these designers uh, uh, at the D school was to create something that could really solve this smoking problem. And um, it just, when the business started to grow and they started to get more in bed with like big business, big tobacco and like, oh, the opportunity is so big. Let's just like go for it. And there's this desire to move super, super fast that doesn't allow, again, for kind of thoughtfulness and just validation and making sure that you're doing the right thing. And it becomes very entrenched in like making money and big business and like all of those things that like you just don't see what's happening until it starts to happen. 
you know, and even thinking about like the, you know, facial recognition software and how most like large companies have said like we're not gonna we're not gonna release any kind of this we're not gonna release this out into the world but there's still companies that are building this stuff like i was reading about it yesterday this clearview ai that's been released to all like you know in in uh, police departments across the country and the work that they're doing that they say that they're doing to try to capture you know pedophiles etc so it's like oh my god of course that's amazing if you could do that but it becomes such a fast slippery slope where it's like, well, you know, we just like wanted to do this one little thing or, well, you know, and then all of a sudden it's been released at this scale. That's really hard to dial back. And so I think to your point, Mike, I mean, this awakening, I think this conversation is incredibly fascinating in this time that we're in and it's moving super fast. But I, I think that it's really important for us to allow the spaces again to have these conversations, to consistently be asking ourselves as designers, like, what is our responsibility and to be allowing for like dissenting opinions and safe spaces and this like conflict and in, in just how people think, you know, because some people might think that having facial recognition software released to the world is perfectly fine, you know, and some people might not. But I think like the value in having that conversation and having the debate is definitely where we're going to start to at least make strides in figuring out what the best next step could be, because I feel like it's such a fast moving train we have to be talking about it constantly. The thing that really frustrates me is is the, um, it feels like a lot of designers, a lot of business people feel this sense of certainty, this clarity of we understand the customer, we understand what we're making and how it serves them. And they really don't. So what you were describing, Mike, they, they have great intentions. I do believe that people generally feel optimistic and positive that they're making something that is useful for the world, for people, and they can make a good business out of it. But the, uh, you know, I think it, let's call it what it is, that it is arrogance to, you know, that having this sense that I understand how this is going to be received in all these other situations, that is arrogance, that we have to have some humility and some mechanisms to investigate the gap between our intentions and the outcomes. And that's the part that I'm really curious about to see how design teams develop these follow-up mechanisms because we're so indexed on shipping very quickly and getting a thing out there and then moving to another iteration, another thing. Yes, there's some research that happens, but a lot of times research is put in to a new thing, not a thing that's out there. And now let's see a year down the road, how's it, how's it affecting people? How's it working in ways that we didn't anticipate? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, we've already gone over a couple of examples here in, in, in both of both of your answers. Uh, you know, Allison started out with the IKEA example. And I think that's an example of, 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 of something where everybody can agree that the, that that the outcome is bad, right? If a dresser falls over on somebody, that is a bad outcome, right? So that is not, not really something that anybody's going to debate. But then I think, you know, one kind of level over is the facial recognition issue, where you know, you can be developing facial recognition. You can say, "Hey, I'm doing this to you know help help you know police find pedophiles," and and you know that that part of it is good. And I don't think anybody would argue that that part of it is bad. But what else are you enabling, right? What other what other behaviors are you enabling once that data is out in the world? What other bad things can happen? And then further over from that, I think is is kind of the final classification for for these sorts of technologies, which is like we don't even know what good is. So there are technologies that you can create 
where you show you show two different people the outcome and they will look at the same outcome and one of them will think that's a great outcome and the other one will think it's a terrible outcome the example I'm, I'm thinking of in particular is all of the kind of political disinformation ads that we're seeing across social networks right now so we're you know we're in the run-up to the 2020 election and there are very very sophisticated campaigns going on right now that essentially target people on social networks based on you know what their interests are and who they may uh, associate with and who they voted for last time and you know all, all those sorts of psych- psychographic kind of pieces of data and these ads are very specifically fooling people into believing things that are that are not true and so you know if you're on one side of, of the aisle you say you may say to yourself well the you know the goal is to elect this person and so as long as this person is elected that's a good outcome like everything else will follow as long as this person's like, if you're on the other side of the aisle, you say, that is terrible. Like we are, we are, we are fooling people in order to get a certain person elected. And so those to me, that's like the final frontier is, is, is product design where you can't even get like two people to agree what is good and what is bad. It seems like utopia and dystopia are separated by a knife's edge. And uh, yeah, you know, it's this, this healthy debate that we need and maybe a red button to, <laughs> you know, to have uh, some deeper conversations about how, how what we're making impacts the world. Mm-hmm. One other point I want to make about, about product design and ethics, since we're talking about it, is, you know, there's been talk of, a, you know, kind of a code of ethics. Mike Montero put out uh, you know, the idea of having a kind of code of ethics for designers. And I was mentioned a little bit, I think, in the article. And, you know, while I, while I don't think that's a bad idea, like in my experience, it's not usually at least, you know, from what I've seen, it's not usually designers who are standing up in the room wanting to do something ethical. Uh, in my experience, oftentimes, in fact, it's the designer or the designer or the research researcher raising their hand saying, hey, I think this is unethical, right? And so I, I don't think we're going to get the outcomes we want if we just have designers adhere to a code of ethics. I think you need PMs to adhere to the same code of ethics. I think you need engineers to to adhere to the same code of ethics, executives, like Product design decisions are not made in a vacuum by designers. They're made by the engineering product design team in concert with executive staff and whoever else may be involved. So I love the idea of like designers leading the way with an ethical code, but you know, an ethical code isn't going to help you in your company if 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 the people around you don't abide by it as well. I'm curious what you got if there's any products out there right now that you guys all feel is addressing ethical design and really interesting or, or new way? I think, well, the article mentions a couple when I was thinking about that as well. I think that um, there's one fashion company, Reformation, which I like to reference often. They're kind of in the Patagonia school, but they're one of the first in high fashion to actually be thinking much more consciously and ethically about how clothing are produced and everything. And I think that they were the one of the only, I'm sure that they're that there is more at this point, but they were definitely the first um, that were thinking about all of the process from end to end and how um, their high fashion lines and clothing are produced and from the types of materials to the people that are making them. And I think that that uh, taking the leap to do that in the fashion industry, which has never really been a leader in this type of thinking, there's now like a lot of fast followers, certainly in more fast fashion as well to to you know, bring that conversation to the fore is like, how are we thinking about just 
you know, these, the clothing that we're wearing and what it actually means and what is that, what does it take to get it on our bodies and what does it mean when it's not on our bodies and how long is the life cycle for that? Yep. I think that's a great example. Polygon is an amazing example of that. I think there are also companies that are starting to look at pricing plans differently. You know, a lot of companies have kind of tiered pricing plans where you, you know, you pay five bucks a month for this amount of usage and 10 bucks for this amount. 20 bucks for this amount. Well, there are some companies that are now proactively looking at your usage. And then, you know, at, at, after two or three months, they may actually say, hey, you don't actually appear like you need this level of plan. You can, you, you can and probably should downgrade to, to, to this level of plan. Like that shows a, a level of ethics and, and, and thought that, it, that, that it would be antithetical to the way a lot of companies operate. Uh, generally, we're told to, you know, kind of upsell people and get as much revenue as, from them as we can. But, you know, whenever I see a, a design touch like that, it just makes me feel good because it, it makes me feel like there was, a, there was a single person at that company who had the idea to do that. And they wouldn't have been able to do it by themselves, right? They needed to pitch that idea. They needed to have a, a good supportive team around them to agree with them that that was, that that was the right idea for the product, for the brand, uh, for the company. It's amazing. You know, I think that Airbnb is an interesting case study, maybe not in always getting it right, because, uh, you know, they, they've, they've built this trust team to try to build trust between hosts and guests. And as part of that, they made some design decisions to show people's faces as part of the, the booking process. So a host would see the face of the person who's requesting, uh, you know, to stay at their place. And that had some, uh, it, it was good intentions that when we see one another's face, we see a human and it's like, okay, we're building trust here. So when they show up at your house, you feel like maybe you know them a little bit, um, you trust them a little bit more, but it actually enabled a lot of racial profiling that was super negative. And I think that, you know, some companies I've seen respond to a crisis, a mistake like that in a really inappropriate way where they subvert that, ignore it, downplay it deploy executives to sort of like talk about how complicated it is and you know we can't really solve this very easily and in reality like Brian Chesky said okay we totally screwed up here we can do better we are going to do better and then you know they started to build teams to address that they made changes in the product and they continue to make changes not saying it's perfect but the way that they responded to that mistake the gap between intention and outcome I think is is worth paying attention to. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, I thought what was interesting in the article was your call out about the humane design guide, which I think aligns to that and thinking more broadly about things like sense making, group dynamics, social reasoning, rather than just like black and white reasoning. And it's super complex because a lot of things are opinions and a lot of things are, you know, like the, the Airbnb example is a, or any other example that we've talked about is like the, the hindsight is 2020 but I, I think it increasingly proves that we need to be involving many more people in the conversation um, because of the complexity of thought right of the collective complexity of sense making, the complexity of group dynamics and social reasoning like these aren't just designers problems to solve. These are like really broad, gnarly problems that we need to be solving. And I think it relates pretty deeply to like cognitive and behavioral neuroscience and psychology um, in practice with design thinking. It's just like, I feel like the opportunities of the different thought leadership that needs to be having these conversations is much broader than it's ever been. Absolutely. 
It's a great place to end it. Allison, Mike, thank you so much for sitting down with us on the Design Better podcast. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T-DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. Support for DesignBetter comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Now let's transition over to our main guest for the show, Nancy Duyon tech ethicist. We had a chance to sit down with Nancy at a recent conference in beautiful Sydney, Australia. She has an amazing arc to her career. So without further ado, Nancy Duyon on the Design Better podcast. Nancy, 
Thanks for joining us on the Design Better podcast. We are here in Sydney today for Design Exchange, sitting down by the harbor, lovely setting, and fascinating background that you have. Could you tell us a little bit about your origin story? So you're born in Haiti. Tell us how you got into the world of design. My family's from Haiti, and they came to America to seek opportunity, as many do. And it was really difficult for them because they're farmers off the coast of a beach. So to an extent, some people would think might think they were already living the life. But growing up in America was super hard and difficult for farmers to adjust to the culture. And then raising children in America as well was just another battle in itself. So here we are living in Haiti as a Haitian commune community. So, you know, we don't believe in using shower water because that's wasteful. And so everyone had buckets of water that we would share, or we all had gardens in our front yards in Boston, Massachusetts. Was Mind you guys, this is before green was cool. So this was embarrassing <laughs> to an extent, watching my parents like pluck tomatoes from the front yard in lovely Boston <laughs> and taking I bites. I love it. I, I'm an avid gardener. so Really? I, I Do you carry that. salt in your pocket like my dad? I don't. I, I can't <laughs> say that I'm that prepared. Yeah. But, you know, I, I started noticing... Um, that there was so much confusion between the cultures of how my mother understood things. So um, I'm pretty intelligent, but the reason I am is because my parents thought they're middle school educated, the bigger the book, the smarter I would be, right? And so they would give me these ginormous books and they thought the harder the cover, the more intellectual the topic. And so I'm reading these enormous amounts of books at like eight years old and learning things that a child shouldn't learn. And then I'm in school in these really, really tough situations where the schools don't really know how to handle me either. I'm referring to all the adult women as mom. And you can imagine American culture, they think I'm drugged or something's wrong. And they're telling my mother, you can't tell your daughter that she's, you know, can call us mom. But in, in Haitian culture, if you're above a certain age, you know how like people will say auntie? In our culture, we call you mom. So if I see somebody above a certain age, I automatically call you as a woman mom. And these teachers just could not understand what was wrong with me. And here I am trying to show respect and they don't understand the context of it. So I very quickly started realizing either I was crazy, the world was crazy, my parents were crazy, America was crazy, or maybe I just needed to explore more to figure out what was the meaning behind these things. So I stopped believing necessarily in reading and I want to see things in the flesh. And that's what started me traveling. I wanted to know what was true. The Haitian culture, the American culture, these books that I was reading, or... When I flew out to Minnesota, was that accurate? And what I started seeing was the common denominator amongst humans. And I also started seeing the differences amongst us and the fact that we don't really appreciate those differences as much and that there's value to that. You know, so began my career of design without even realizing I was in design. When I was 11, I got into robotics in a very strange way. And I remember I was placed in front of a computer for the first time, <laughs> like a real computer. We had computers back then, but my parents didn't really understand why I couldn't just submit my homework by typewriter. So we had garage sale typewriters, and my parents refused to understand how difficult it was that you could not backspace on a typewriter. <laughs> so hopefully I'm not aging myself too much. There's there no, no, no control Z on a typewriter. Right, Whiteout was my, my best friend. But, you know, I'm in this world learning robotics, and I just get in front of this game, Solitaire. You may have seen it. And one of the questions I asked the person who was teaching me is, why is the background green? And the statement that was said to me is like, that doesn't matter. No one cares about why the background's green. Just We just play this. And I said, so you have no idea if you're being manipulated in any way? You have no concept? And they're like, well, these questions don't matter. 
And I, I, how do you know they don't matter if you don't know the answer to them? You know, later on I found out, you know, the green had to do with, like, the fact that the boards are green and that's what they were trying to emulate, I guess. But I started wondering what were the questions we weren't asking that we didn't want to know and how could we look at those questions as an opportunity to design something that was more efficient, effective, useful for people versus folks just kind of eating all this information without knowing where it's coming from. And the opposite is true too, where whereas designers and engineers feeding people information without fully understanding how they're utilizing that around the world. And that was something I also want to say I noticed. I would go to Haiti and I remember I thought Haitians invented voice over IP. I was like positive of it because they knew how to hack into systems uh, before we did to, to call us in America. I remember the first time I got a call, I'm like, we have one phone in the community. How did you call me? And they're like, oh, we figured some things out. There's this internet. We went to the internet cafe and we did this and that. And I'm like, oh my God, this is brilliant. If only the rest of the world knew. Of course, eventually <laughs> yeah. the rest of the world found out. But I really started also appreciating innovation from people who were different and how they were able to take things that were less valuable or as, a, as underrepresented people, they had less tools to make things work for them. And as a result, they were able to build these efficient systems that were much more scalable than we would here in the States where we have all the resources right. possible. Con con constraints can, right. can create opportunity, which is a, a, a really fundamental principle of design. You hear people talk about the white page or the blank page fear of, you know, I could put anything on this page and it creates paralysis. You're mm -hmm. not quite sure what to do. It's fascinating to hear this, you know, coming from Haiti and there are certain constraints from growing up in Haiti and then also as a kid having certain constraints. How do you think that that influenced the way that you solve problems today? Well, I think what's great about it is it, it opened up my mind to no limitations for trying to solve problems. I think I understood very early that design was problem solving. Um, and you may have heard this, of course, before. And I have a lot of folks who think it's art. And, you know, people talk about that sometimes. But it was super interesting to me that I could look at a stovetop and figure out a better way to design it. Like, why are the, the buttons on the front of the stove all in one row when they could be placed in the exact design of the stove? You know what I'm talking about? Like, the where you don't know if you have to turn on the top left or the whatever. And then I started hearing really interesting stories like we'll stick with the stove example of like Germans going to Panama and giving families stoves and coming back a few years later to find out how they were using it and finding out that people were using them to hold dishes. Just the same thing I do with dishwashers. I don't think, I mean, I've never really used a dishwasher. I just use it to hold my dishes. And when they tried to understand deeper why they weren't using these stovetops, it was because they took away something that was already prevalent with the stoves that they had. They had these round stoves that were centered in the room. They created community. They brought people together. There was so much other meaning and value that was taken away with it when the design became, to an extent, less efficient. And so I wanted to start understanding how we could use design to, to help design at scale. Because as a Haitian woman, a black woman, I could not see myself in any of the designs I was working on. I've worked at Google and Intel and Cisco, IBM, and I couldn't see myself in the products that I was working on. And it's really interesting when you're a researcher or an engineer and you're building these products for other people and you have a voice at the table as well and you know others do, but how do you tell people that, hey, I think you're only designing for westernized societies or... Do you, have, do you have specific examples of that? 
So, for example, Uber had decided, you guys know about Uber, that they wanted to introduce their product to the world, but some considerations they didn't think about was the fact that credit cards, which is the primary function used in Uber, uh, that three-digit pin on the back isn't actually available on credit cards around the world. In fact, people don't really use credit cards all over the world like that. And so in South America, they don't have the pin. There's other ways to pay for things. And so what ended up happening is the product in America, where it's like, oh, wait, we have an opportunity that all of us can use it, it became a luxury around the world. Because only if you had a credit card would you be able to get on this product. But when the decision was made to introduce cash to the platform, which it is introduced on the platform in places like India, we started seeing it create opportunity for people who didn't have access to transportation in ways that were previously used. We were starting to get a, a different kind of customer. And that was increasing our profit. It was increasing accessibility. It was increasing versatility with our product. And it became something that made the product a lot more global, if that makes sense. And so I see a lot of these examples when we kind of take ourselves, our own Western perspectives out and say, you know, some people thought that cash would be dangerous if we introduced it in the world. But the question that you ask is, well, have they been using it now? Is it a danger today? Another good example is, um, if you buy an, I'll, I'll tell a, a story. I was in India and I was asking permission if I could wear a sari. And because I thought they were so beautiful. And a friend of mine said, oh, it's absolutely fine. I went to the store and have a language difference with this, the gentleman in the store. He's showing me these materials that I think could be better looking. So I repeat Beyonce over and over again, hoping he'll understand that means I need something prettier. He didn't know who Beyonce was, but he got the gist. So we, uh, we, uh, <laughs> there's a place in the world a, where people don't know who Beyonce is. Can you is. believe it? <laughs> I can't believe it. I that. cannot believe that. And so here in two days, I got this beautiful sari made and I'm in the streets shopping and in the, in sort of like a farmer's market, I mean, outside buying fruit and everyone is staring at me because I know I look absolutely gorgeous, right? And a friend runs up to me and says, oh my God, what are you doing? And I said, clearly I'm attractively buying fruit. And she says, you're wearing a wedding dress. I had no idea that the color red and gold in India represented celebratory weddings and things like that. And so people just thought I was a bride that got hungry and ran away or something. <laughs> um, but, but the thing is, here I am in school, you know, studying human factors engineering, and they're saying red keeps you alert. And that's why we have our casinos with red colors. And we like pump oxygen into the spaces so that people can stay there longer as we place no clocks on the walls. The most addictive machines are here and there. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if red impacts people in the States one way, are you sure it impacts people around the world the same way if white is a color for funerals in India and red is a color for wedding? And so I, I was super curious about these questions. So I actually started in engineering, ended up moving quickly into research to try to get these questions answered, which makes sense. I was this curious kid. I always wanted questions answered, so I found the perfect world for me. There's a quote we found. I'll just paraphrase it, but it said that you went to the Google search engine you typed in all your passions, sociology, psychology, computer science, engineering, love, forgiveness, and that two fields popped up, human factors, engineering, which you just mentioned, and human-computer interaction. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that part of the story, what led you in that. So um, I noticed you stated at the end the love and forgiveness aspect that I put in there. Well, when I was in uh, undergrad, I had a lot of roles. I worked at Harvard, working in uh, what is now called cybersecurity. I worked at MIT, working in urban planning. I worked in the city of Boston, working on policy and things like that. And while still in the world of tech, I just felt like there was something missing in my work. And it was this idea of healing. 
in design. And it, it's something that's really important to me because I feel like, you know, my parents eventually had to go back to America. I ended up in foster care in America. And it was a really tough world for me to live officially in a system. And I was in eight different homes. It was the worst experience of my life. And this is like from the ages of 12 all the way through college. And it was so important to me. And I, I mean, to heal myself while working through this process. And I eventually did. I found a lot of different interesting ways of forgiving people who had caused harm in my life. And I didn't know if there was a world to mix that with this interest in engineering. So I'm not really sure why that popped off. I'm pretty sure it crossed off the word forgiveness and love. <laughs> but I realized there was an opportunity for me to introduce this idea of belonging and love into the world of design. I think that's really interesting and feels very timely. It feels like a common thread we see with a lot of headlines around technology right now is that we're shifting from this idealistic view of what technology could do for our world to create this utopia and finding out that the utopia is not quite, it's not here like we wanted. And your perspective is really interesting because you look at design in a very inclusive way, in a very like, in, in the truest sense of the word, that the worldview, so many different people have different problems and they approach products, design, world situations differently. And you've kind of found yourself in what I would call like an advocacy role that almost like bringing people's attention to this huge gap. You're missing this huge piece of the population. You're, you're solving a problem for yourself and you're not seeing the problem from other people's perspective. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how does that manifest in your work today? How sure. is that meaningful to you? A, a couple of years ago, I introduced at the UX Enterprise Conference um, a term I call nobility complex. It's this idea that we don't recognize the privilege that we have. Yeah. And that as a result of not understanding our privilege in design and as well our explicit bias, we're actually designing to pat ourselves on the back and not necessarily designing to make others feel included in things. The way I, I even came up with this concept is I noticed when I was in Haiti a day before the Haitian earthquake, my parents went missing. My mother was missing for six days. My father was missing for two weeks and I'd lost my mind. And everybody knew what was going on in Haiti. Everyone knew I had been in Haiti. Everybody wanted to help. And so I'm getting so many calls from people saying, hey, let me send clothes out there. I want to help in some way. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of this in some way. We'll figure out some way to bring good in Haiti. And I just kept hearing over and over again people saying, where can I send my clothes? Where can I send clothes to bring to Haiti? And one day I snapped and I said, guys, there are no homes. There's floods. Where are we going to put these clothes that you're sending? And I realized in that moment that people didn't take the time to ask me what I need no, people didn't take the time to co-design with me to figure out what I needed solutions for. What I actually needed help with when I spoke to this particular friend is we needed to build wells in Haiti, right? Because we had, you know, cholera and unclean water and we need to find a way to get that. And that was, you know, uh, I think uh, University of Michigan at the time that I was at uh, working on my PhD, a few of my friends got together and raised, uh, I want to say, a little over $2,000 and we built multiple wells across Haiti. But it was that snapping moment that made me realize that we spend a lot of time just in general in our societies not turning our assumptions into questions. 
we're so quick to help, but it's not coming from a bad place. Yeah. And I want to make sure people understand that I'm not trying to beat up on the fact that we have this privilege in the world. I know the word privilege is a really scary word right now, but even I have privilege, right? In the position I am working at these companies that have the opportunity to scale. So it's important with my privilege that I speak up. And it's important that if somebody is is saying things to you that you feel is more sumptuous, that we try to get them to really take a look at what question they're not answering. So it kind of comes back to this idea of how can we make sure that we're building more inclusively? And this means even as a white male, you can be part of designing more inclusively by thinking a little bit more openly about your privilege in these differences in society and having these uncomfortable, hard conversations. So your story about Haiti and the clothes reminded me we helped out with a class where we interviewed a bunch of the survivors of the Paradise Fires. And big organizations like the Red Cross were sending people things like shovels. And their, and their house was obviously just completely gone. And well, how does a shovel help me in this situation? And, and no matter that the intent was really good, but there was just this big disconnect between what the people needed and what was sent to them. So I'm curious if you have any other, you know, any other areas of focus where you, you see that mismatch right now in tech in your own work or places where you could see this you know, design being applied in that way. Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is I think every company I've ever worked with has had that mismatch in some way or another. Part of it is because, I mean, when you think about it, who are we hiring? You know, I've always been, for the most part, the only black woman in a group. And so it wasn't surprising to me when Google launched their first watch. You guys remember those digital things that none of them could fit on the wrist of women, (laughs) you know, or the fact that they were all black which is, you know, sometimes a color that's associated when you think about men. In fact, if you interview men and women about the color preferences they have, males will tend to pick between a few colors, like three colors, and women will choose between a lot more colors. And so you can even see in the design world, I find a design in tech is very masculine without consideration of like, hey, throw a little rose gold on there and you've just increased opportunity for others. Think about what we're teaching people with design. How often do you see baby changing stations in men's rooms? Very rarely. Very rarely. <laughs> and so what are you saying? Men aren't alone with their children, <laughs> right? <laughs> and but, but here's the opportunity here. Now you have this conversation about all gender bathrooms and transgender bathrooms, and that's creating more versatility and accessibility for men, mm-hmm. right? And saying that, you know, you have more opportunity to, to change the narrative of what you can do as well. That's what I mean with the colors and things like that. I think we we do limit ourselves sometimes with our stereotypes that we're completely unaware of. And I'll give you an example where this went well when we were designing what we thought was for just an underrepresented community and how it actually created opportunity for everyone apart from just this like all gender bathroom. So I'll use Uber again as an example. At Uber, they decided to create a technology for drivers who are hard of hearing so that they could be added onto the platform. So now deaf drivers can pick up passengers and the screen flashes for you to pick up someone. And what was interesting about bringing that to the platform is originally it was thought that that would you know be a great thing for just folks who are hard of hearing, but some of you may have experienced drivers who may have had a sign you see that it says the driver might be deaf, but they seem to be speaking just fine. We noticed that people were using the feature who were immigrants to help them mm. with the barrier of language sure. so that they would not be, you know, scored unjustly or things like that. We even noticed people turning on the feature who just didn't want to talk to anybody. So there you go, opportunity <laughs> for everyone, <Right. laughs> you know? Uh, but things like 
I don't know if you know, Autocomplete was first created as an accessibility project, and now it's something that we all have the pleasure of using. Google Voice was created first as an accessibility project, and now it's something that we all have the opportunity of enjoying. So in thinking about the underrepresented people in our technology, you're also increasing opportunity for yourself. Sure. I want to talk a little bit, you mentioned hiring. Hiring is hard, very difficult to do. You said something, you said, I, I truly believe this. If you want to hire somebody, look at their story. Why do you look at a person's story when you're hiring? What does that tell you? This is a bit personal for me because, you know, I spent my entire life trying to chase what I believe would get white people to hire me, right? So I went to the, you know, the MITs, the University of Michigan, the you know, Harvard's, I only would try to work for these top organizations. And it, it makes me really sad to think that people think the only opportunity is to just kind of chase validation to these larger corporations. Mm -hmm. When growing up, I was very fortunate. I said I started off in robotics, but very fortunate that at 12, I was taken under wing by a professor at MIT, Mitchell Resnick, who from the Media Lab designed a program called Computer Clubhouse. And they were children there, you know, from eight to 18, who are much more talented than me, way more talented, who should be probably in better positions than me. But unfortunately, because of their circumstances, they didn't get to where I am. Uh, you know, I had to work four jobs my first year of college to pay off school. Some people just don't have that ability or capacity to do that. I was alone. My parents weren't here. So I, I mean, my entire focus was on myself, but some folks have to take care of their entire families. Some folks have children along the way in their journey and have to catch up. So how do you know that somebody, if given the chance, would be the right fit to learn and do great things in this role? Because I know tons of people who'd be great fits but they don't fit the typical archetype of what we're looking for in tech. That's why I say focus on kind of the story because I feel like in the story, you'll get to hear more deeply what their differences can help you with. Yeah. Like, you know, I think that the example of me seeing design very early as a way to really share stories to help people see things differently. I became a storyteller yep. as an engineer and I think that's an important tool to have. So why not hire storytellers? Or when I was helping Uber hire teams, I built with the team a program called a Global Scalable Research Platform. And we were hiring people in India and Brazil and Mexico, but we couldn't find UX, right, in these places per se. So we started interviewing journalists. We interviewed TV producers, people who knew how to share the perspective of empathizing with someone else and thought that that would be a better fit to introduce them and train them in UX versus just trying to find somebody maybe in America and sending them to India to bring their American perspective to UX in India. This is fascinating, looking for like adjacencies, yeah. skills. Can you share with us a story, maybe without names, but someone that you've interviewed where you saw the soft skills or the foundation upon which you know the company could build through their, their background, their origin story? Sure. And actually this girl, I'll give an example, was pretty successful. I was speaking in a, I spoke at Adobe Max and um, a young woman overheard me speaking and my colleagues came over to me and said, did you hire a black Trini girl to <laughs> just cheer for you on Twitter? And I said, "I nope, uh, black people don't know all black people, surprisingly, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so um, I ended up somehow connecting with this young woman on Twitter and she was telling me, you know, her background was in music. 
And she said she really wanted to get into design and she had been following me for some time, but had no idea how to get into the world of design. And I, I was asking her about her skill sets. And while she was telling me her skills, I just I thought she was already a designer. I, I really was sure of it because a lot of her skills were just were of empathy, of wanting to hear other people's perspective, of taking herself out of the way, just really made sense to me. She just didn't have the language. Even like something like doing a contextual inquiry, she knew she's done those before, but she just didn't have the language for it. So I created a document called the, uh, on Medium, it's called uh, the UX Cheat Sheets. Cheat Sheets, I have three of them. And the idea is that you can read these documents and see where you fall in as far as, are you more of a coder? Are you more of an artist? And where, what, what do I need to learn what words do I need to learn to show that I have this skill set? So what I asked her to do was take a look at this list I came up with and try to self-teach yourself some of these skills and try to apply them to work that you've already either already have done or create new projects so that you could at least have a portfolio. So here's the gap, right? She has no portfolio. She needs a portfolio to get into the field. She doesn't have the right language. She doesn't really know the methodologies, but she... I believe, has had the skills, she just doesn't know the language. So what she did is go back, build out a portfolio. I said, you know, three to five things and just see if these words plug in somewhere. And within a matter of like a few few weeks, she comes up with this, honestly, this magnificent portfolio. And I, I was blown to pieces. I sent it to everyone. And now she is doing amazingly. She is a UX designer. She's working for Deloitte right now. And before that, worked with a few other companies. But she came from the music world. And just because she had enough of the, I think, the skills already, she just needed that language. She was able to position herself in this world of designing for empathy. And it's amazing that she's at a corporation that was able to see that despite her educational background. It's a great story. Tied to what you were just talking about, we dug up another quote from you that said, you, you know, you had this great technical ability, but you're too scared to pursue this computer science degree. And you believe it was a man's job despite the fact that you were already doing it. Could you, could you tell us a, bit, a little bit about maybe what, what unlocked, what helped you change your perspective about that and become successful in your field? When I started learning computer science, I was 12 years old. And these are from my advisors and mentors at MIT. And many of them were women. And I had... I now know that, you know, back in like the 70s and 80s, women were like basically 50% of computer science field. It was kind of considered secretarial work. So they were pigeoned into that world. And then somebody changed the narrative and it became a man's world, which was interesting. And so when I got to school, I didn't feel like it was a world that I could be in because there seemed, again, to be this archetype to it. So I decided instead of going to school for computer science, I went to school for information systems, even though I was teaching computer science <laughs> at the time. Luckily, I got to do sociology and all these other interesting things. So I ended up getting a degree in sociology. I got a degree in information systems. And I remember I finally started taking a computer science class. And I thought I was cheating. I really thought because, you know, they make you go through the tutorial and I didn't need a tutorial to do the assignment. And so I completed the assignment and thought I had done something wrong because I had figured out how to do it without using this kind of book. But uh, I think what ended up happening as I, I kept growing into it is that I figured that you don't necessarily have to learn in the same way others do and that you can be self-taught. 
And I'm very, very big on that. I feel like a lot of the, what I've learned was because of, not in school, but really what I've learned from actual practice, which I got to do really, really early on. And so when I started seeing that I had almost like a a differentiator, a creative way to see it. And you know, about oh, I've always stood out in the room. Somebody once told me when I was trying to be a tech bro, which I'm not very good at, <laughs> that they couldn't understand why I was trying to fit in because they felt like tech bros were so strange that if I was just myself, I'd fit in just perfectly fine, <laughs> just be strange. And I think that's what clicked for me, was like, you know what? I already have the ability. Why does the look have to match? If anything, I might be inspiring to be a different look in this field. And so I grabbed it by both hands and I went forward with it and decided that I was going to ignore the image and be this kind of creative bubble burst of color that had, you know, a different approach. I call it the Latina approach, the Latinx approach, because, you know, Haitians are Latina. And I said, that's the fire. So what you guys are experiencing with me is a little fire. That's a little different, but it's all it does is, is make things better you know, by adding a little bit of color to what we already have. So thinking about, there are a lot of different types of folks who listen to this podcast and they're probably pretty inspired by the global perspective that you have. You've traveled to, I think you said 70 different countries, which is impressive. Not too many people have visited that many countries. Do you have advice for people, for designers, for people who are making products and software for other human beings? how they can bring more of a global perspective to their work? I truly believe um, I'm a fan of immersion in other cultures. Please travel, people. And I mean, yes, travel globally. I mean, I was living in, in Nepal for a little bit and my rent was $1.78 a day and my meals were 13 cents all you could eat. I was never coming back, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it was so amazing to learn a different perspective from my own. I also lived in Spain. When I lived in Spain, I was yelled at by, I was living with a family. Um, I wanted to live with a family because I wanted to understand their experience. And they said, you Americans, which was exciting to me. Europe, they would see me as American versus like a black girl or something. Uh, and she's like, you guys play with your food too much. She was talking about the fact that we have rabbits as pets and she thought that was disgusting. A <laughs> 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 rabbit should be eaten, right? She told me my name should be Maria because of like, uh, I guess the Franco days, the name Maria was a proper name for women. And she's just spewing out everything I'm doing wrong in this world. And I'm smiling because she has no idea she's been fed this cultural perspective and that if only she stepped outside her box, she'd learn something different. Right. But I was impressed. Like I was constantly in trouble. She threw my food out of the microwave because she says, a woman, you should cook. And I'm like, it's it's cooked. You're just putting it in the microwave. And she's like, you cook from scratch. And I've, I've never had a microwave since. I've never owned a microwave since. And I make everything from scratch. And it's just so interesting just kind of learning from other perspectives. But let's say you just can't leave your country, per se. I say, you know, look within your organizations for people who are a little different than yourself. There are ERGs that you can leverage for study purposes or to ask interesting questions to if you have some, you know, you can visit other neighborhoods. Do your research outside of the Bay Area. Mm. You know, the Bay has changed quite a bit. And so that could be as little as going to Oakland or as, you know, going to Sacramento to do your studies just to get a perspective that is different. I remember I was doing studies in Mountain View and I kid you not. We had two medical doctors in a study of like four, I'm sorry, eight people. And I'm like, I, I just don't know if this is like an example of the real world. I think we 
must be able to find someone who could, one, use this money that we're giving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know where this doctor came from that we, you know, we pay for our studies. But it, it would be really good to just kind of get a perspective that we ne- we didn't have before. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to get out of our own bubble and our own box by just experience, even especially across the United States. I've driven across the United States a few times, and it's fascinating to me, just the differences in culture in this country alone. Yeah, it's a big place. <laughs> Definitely. Nancy, right now, what's what's inspiring you? And that could be a book, it could be a person. It doesn't have to be about design necessarily. Just what are you finding inspiring at the moment? So right now, what I'm inspired by is trying to create better metrics to measure love and belonging in the work that we do. I think that we have been so focused on trying to build products that have more attention and build products that have more focus. And while it might seem usable to you, it may not actually be making the world a better place. So I want to try to figure out how to talk a little bit more about consciously designing. And I'm hoping with the book that I'm writing, I can share some of these experiences that I've had all over the world, these interesting, interesting stories of my life and others to really help hopefully inspire people to see kind of like I've seen these just differences in human beings and the beauty in them and the fact that we each have a role in trying to make this world a better place. And so as I look at the fact that I've been fortunate to work in something I call personally the three S's uh, for myself. I, the things that make me passionate are scale, systematic change, and social impact. And I am in this privileged world where I get to work with these large corporations that get to impact the world both positively or negatively. And if I can continue to help guide people into helping this world become a little more belonging each day, then I feel like I've done my service to this world. Nancy Duyon, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.